This morning is both the last week in Judges and the last week in Advent. The content of these chapters, I will warn you from the beginning, is brutal. You could make the case that these are the darkest chapters in the whole Bible. In fact, these stories are so brutal, I'm, I'm gonna fly over the text at about 30,000 feet to help us see the big picture, how this ending wraps up the whole book and, and what it has to teach us about the life of faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So parents, I will warn you that though disturbing themes come up, I'm gonna use euphemisms, I'm gonna avoid focusing on the specifics of the brutality that you can just see with your own eyes in front of you as you look down at your Bibles. Now, I don't think we should ignore these things. I think you should read them for yourselves in the scriptures. The shock value is part of the point. We need to come face to face with the, the wickedness of sin, but I think we can still do that and make that point in a gathering of mixed age groups. The most brutal passage in the whole Bible, the week before Christmas, is that a bit downer? A bit of a downer for the last week of Advent? Well, not if we understand Advent. Because in the words of Fleming Rutledge, Advent begins in the dark. She has become something of an Advent theologian for the whole Christian church and said this once in a piece for Christianity Today. The biblical story is rigorously unsentimental. It does not offer optimism. It does not offer positive thinking. It looks deeply into human misery, human folly, human pain, and plain old human disappointment. I like what one writer said about the 20th century, an era of wars, world wars, and genocide. Instead of growing enlightenment, it seems more like an endarkenment. Oh, the Advent season, properly understood, helps us understand endarkenment. It strengthens us for life in the real world where there are real malignant forces actively working against human flourishing and the purposes of God. Friends, Advent prepares us for life in the real world. Life not as we wish it were, but life as it really is. Advent is a reminder that the night is always darkest before the dawn. But Advent reminds us that make no mistake, the dawn is coming. This morning shows us not Israel as she wished she were. This morning shows us not Israel as she would present herself to the world. But this passage shows us Israel as she really is. This morning, we feel heavy darkness in the text. But that darkness, though heavy, could not and will not defeat the light. Because here is the message of Advent. In a really, truly, and profoundly dark world of sin and evil, the one true light has come. The title of this sermon is A Very Dark Darkness. A Very Dark Darkness. Now, like I mentioned, I'm gonna fly over the plot at 30,000 feet and then ask, what do we make of this story? What do we make of this darkness and this wickedness in the people of God? What does it have to teach the church today? Why is it an appropriate sermon for Advent? And oh, let's get ready to feast and celebrate 
next week. A Levite has a concubine. The story begins. It's messed up from the very beginning. A man from a tribe of people meant to be set apart for the worship of God has a concubine. Was it socially acceptable in his day? Sure, sure. But was it spiritually acceptable among God's people? No. The concubine quite understandably decides she no longer wants to be part of this arrangement. The Levite goes back to her father's house to win her back. Her father goes through this elaborate ritual to show hospitality to the Levite, but the Levite decides to leave with his concubine after five days. The servants suggest they stay in a Canaanite town, but the Levite says, no, it's not safe to stay amongst those pagans. Oh, hear the notes of irony for what will come. It's not safe, we can't stay there. Let's get to Gibeah where the Israelites live. That'll be better for all of us. We'll get away from these bad guys and we'll get over there with the, the good guys. They plan to just stay in the town square, but an old man comes to them and says, no, 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 you must not stay here. He invites him to stay with them, him, his concubine, and their traveling party. Leading Benjaminite men show up to the house that night and they demand euphemism to have relations with the Levite and the old man. Does this sound like Genesis 19? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's supposed to. So what's the old man do? Well, how about you just take my daughter and his concubine and here again, 30,000 feet, read it on your own. What happens to them is tragic. News of this spreads throughout Israel. The Levite makes sure everyone knows what has been done to them in Gibeah. Men of fighting age from every tribe except Benjamin, of course, this is where Gibeah is, rise up to fight, to answer this evil together. Almost all of Israel is united in their opposition to what has been done to this woman and this concubine. They gather to hear what has happened. I'll read a verse from chapter 20, verse three. The people of Israel said, they're gathered together. Tell us what has happened. Tell us how in the world this could happen in Israel. And the Levite, verse four, the husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she's dead. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, sent her throughout the whole country of the inheritance of Israel for they have committed an abomination and outrage. Behold, you people of Israel, give your advice and counsel. Now, is this the whole story? No. Does he tell them he's a coward? <laughs> Does he tell them that she died because he would not? Does he tell them that he and this man saved themselves and brought this fate upon these women? By the way, they're the only people in the story who look good. What's been done to them is horrible and tragic. The person rallying all of Israel is telling a half-truth. Yes, what they did is wrong and demands retribution. That's true. But what ain't true is the story he's selling them. This happened to her because he's a coward. 
Well, this united Israel has no idea they're being misled, but what happened to these women is so heinous, they rightly know they gotta do something. So they try diplomacy, look with me in verse 12. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. What should have happened here? What would justice have done? Bring out the people who did it? Let them face the punishment of their crimes. But what do the people of Benjamin do? Oh, something we're tempted to do. They chose their tribe over the truth. They chose protecting their own instead of holding their own accountable. They chose the powerful over the weak. They chose the strong men over the blood that cries out from innocent women. They protected themselves instead of repenting of their sin. And this leads to an all-out civil war. Verse 18, as we come to the end of our tragic plot summary, is a tragic bookend to Judges. You remember in the beginning of the book, who will go before us to fight against the Canaanites? Who will go before us to lead the conquest into this unconquered territory so that the false gods of the nations would be rid, so that the one true God might reign in holiness over his people and that this might be good news for all the surrounding nations who come to him by faith? Who will go first in the battle? Judah will go. Now here we are at the end of Judges. In verse 18, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and acquired of God. Who shall go first up for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go first. In the introduction, Judah is rising up to fight against the enemy. And in the conclusion, Judah is once again rising up to fight against the enemy. But the enemy is not out there. The enemy is in here. The enemy is in the household of God. God's people aren't asking God who will go and fight the Canaanites, but who will go and fight their brothers? Because Israel is broken. They have forsaken the Lord their God and descended into chaos. More happens in the story. I don't know that we have the stomach or time to go through it. More people are killed. More women are taken advantage of. They're kidnapped. They're made wives to Benjaminites because they feel bad for the almost extinction of the entire tribe. But they've made a foolish vow that they won't marry. So they come up with this elaborate ruse, taking advantage of more people, murdering more people. And chapter 21, verse 25, brings a Final ending to the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What in the world do we make of this? Two things, I'll be brief. First, sin is Israel's problem. We are supposed to read this, I think, and think that this place is Sodom. This is worse than any pagan place you could imagine. It's brutal, like it's an ancient horror story. And the Canaanites are not to blame. The Israelites, God's own people are to blame. Remember the purpose of the conclusion. We had a concluding story last week that showed us about false worship and disobedience to God. We saw corrupt worship. We saw a priest for hire who sold himself to a guy and sold himself to a higher bidder in the business of religion. That story was dark, but this story, you need to go home and take a shower after you read. This story takes darkness and it becomes a very dark darkness. Remember the purpose of these stories is to show us what Israel is like during the judges. Look just at a literary point. No one here has names. It's just a man, a woman, a concubine, a Levite, the people. It could be anyone. Remember the purpose, to show us the depth and depravity of the house of Israel. Who looks good at the end of Judges? Anyone? Any of the leaders? Any of the people? There is no happy ending. Israel's a disaster. The judges have gotten worse and worse and worse. The people have gotten worse and worse and worse. And what specifically is Israel's problem? Where is all this rebellion coming from? The answer is simple. The writer of Judges tells us, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sin is Israel's deepest problem. What is sin, really, if you're taking notes? And I've always just kind of wondered, what is sin, really? It's living my way instead of God's. It's walking in rebellion, not faith. It's a breaking both of God's law and of God's heart. And this leads to dysfunction, where even a little sin is harbored. Great damage follows. The book of Judges begins with just a little bit of compromise. Well, we'll just compromise a little bit here. We'll go this far in the land and not all the way into the land. We'll do this, but not this. The book of Judges begins with a little bit of compromise that shouldn't be a big deal and ends with that meme of the everything on fire and the thing just sitting there like everything's fine, right? Like this is the arc of Judges. A little bit of compromise to absolute devastation. Judges teaches us that sin is a cruel taskmaster. It will take you further than you ever wanted to go and hold your hand the whole way. It'll take you further than you ever wanted to go one step at a time. Oh, a little bitterness to that person who wronged you can lead to a life with no joy, robbing you of beauty, laughter, and love with the people you love. A little compromise in a relationship with a coworker can devastate a family when sin takes you further in that relationship than you ever thought you'd go. 
just a little bit of dishonesty in your finances. And one day you wake up broke and bankrupt. Sin is like cologne, man. Like we should teach all middle school boys. A little goes a long way. I wish I could teach high school boys that a little would help though. Yeah. The message of Judges is clear. Sin is Israel's problem. And this, chat, this passage makes abundantly clear it's Israel's fault. Oh, I think there might be a word for the church here. The people of God in the world today who are so good at identifying everything wrong with everyone else, with those people out there that do this and do that and think like this and vote like that and talk like that and live like that. Oh, I think there is a word here for the church. It's easy to blame all kinds of people for the weakness of the church. What if God isn't sending revival to his church, not because of anything the world's doing, but because we refuse to take inventory of our own hearts? And when you study Christian history, all great revivals of the Christian faith have one thing in common. It's not necessarily charismatic leaders. It's not necessarily giant musical productions. It's not necessarily great energy and enthusiasm. All great revivals at least have this in common, repentance. Repentance. A renewed sense of sin's grievousness and God's holiness and beauty. So what is the best gift we can give one another this Christmas? Oh, I think it's a shared commitment to Christ and the pursuit of his holiness. It's almost a truism in pastoral ministry. Every time you talk to an older pastor, they'll say, the best gift you can give your congregation is your holiness. And I don't just think that's true for pastors. If you're a church member and you say, what is the best thing I can do for the church? Well, there's a lot you can do for the church, of course. You can serve, you can volunteer. Even more importantly, you can just be a friend who makes friends. You can step up to help solve problems, to improve things. Whatever you wanna do, man, the membership, y'all, the congregation is the point. That's the beauty of our polity. The, the congregation leads the way and we just equip you and help you do it. But even more fundamentally than showing up, serving, giving, even more fundamentally than all of that, the most important gift you can give your church is your own commitment to Christ, your own prayer life, your own commitment to holiness. We have a great problem in our day when we think about holiness and righteousness. We think these terms are dark and restrictive and legalistic, but they are life-giving and freeing. This is what C.S. Lewis was getting his, putting his finger on when he says that, that we are so oft content to, to play with mud pies on the beach when a holiday at sea is offered us in Christ. So if we do anything this Christmas, it must be this, to lift our eyes together to Jesus, to look unto heaven and see him there, to hear his call to love him and obey him and offer our lives as living sacrifices to him. If sin leads to dysfunction, then righteousness leads to flourishing. But don't get it twisted. The message of this sermon is not a downer. The message of this sermon is not a work. Go do this. Stop sinning. Clean yourself up. God will bless you if you do that. 
You're the problem, so be the solution. If that's what we take, then I've either not preached the sermon right or we haven't heard it. Because if Israel is the problem, Israel cannot be the solution. Some scholars actually think the book of Judges was written for its original audience as an apologetic or a defense of the Davidic monarchy. There was no king in Israel and look at the literal hellhole that Israel is. So guess what? We need a king. We need someone to lead us and tell us what's right. It makes sense if this is his political purpose. But if you were to keep reading through the whole Old Testament, you would find that Israel would have a king soon. But this first civil war we read about in Judges, well, it won't be the last. The kingdom is going to divide into a northern part and a southern part. Leaders will fail. David himself will fail. People will sin. Sure, good kings and good leaders made it better than some of the mess we see here. But none of the leaders, not a single one of them, would be perfect because none of them could do anything about the real problem. None of them could do anything about the deepest problems plaguing Israel. But the voice of God would soon speak through his prophets. Jeremiah would come onto the scene and say this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is his righteousness. Jeremiah whispered of a coming king and Isaiah would shout of him. For to us, Isaiah says, long before the birth of Christ, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The first thing we must see this morning is that sin inside of Israel is Israel's deepest problem. But the second thing is simply this, Jesus will be the answer. Jesus will be the answer. Who is the hero of Judges? It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's the child who will be born. It's the Davidic king who will reign with excellence and righteousness and justice. 
Sin is the great problem in the book of Judges. Sin is the great problem in the Old Testament. Sin is the great problem in the New Testament. And sin is the great problem when I look in the mirror. Sin is the great problem of my heart. Sin is the great enemy of the church. And to people walking in great darkness, the light of life has come. Jesus, the Son of God, the one against whom we have sinned, God himself has come. Why? Oh man, it's not because we're good. It's not because we got it all together. It's not because we're smart. It's not because we try hard. It's not because we show up at church. It's not because we give some money. It's not because of who our parents were. It's not because of who our friends are. It's not because I'm a preacher. It's not because you're a church person. It's just because he loves us. Jesus is a savior deliverer better than any of the judges because he comes not to deliver us from the problems out there, but he comes to deliver us from the problems in here to a people who could not and would not, if they could, save themselves. Jesus has come. To a people neck deep, no, 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 drowning in sin and rebellion, Jesus comes. Jesus comes to the dark world of the judges, and he comes to the dark world of our day to a world of suffering and pain and exploitation and greed and oppression, the Son of God brings salvation. Uh, Nate, you can come on up. Jesus is God's answer to our deepest problem. At a cross outside the city gates, He would take our sin on his shoulders, giving us his righteousness. Jesus is the hero for which we long at the end of this tragic book. Remember one detail in this story? We just glossed over it, so you may not. When the crowd comes and demands that a man be taken, and abused and beaten and murdered, what does the man say? No, 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 take my wife, take my wife, take my wife. Don't take me, take my wife. But what if he had said like, like take me? What if Jesus is like a better version of this guy? Like, What if Jesus is the one who doesn't say, take her, take him? But what if Jesus comes and says, take me, take me? See, a cowardly man gives his own wife to the crowd to save his life in this story. 
But in the story of the gospel, like Jesus gives his own life for his bride, the church. That Jesus dies at the hands of sinners so that we would not. Jesus takes our shame so that we would not. This is the love of God for us. That he would come into the world, not a beautiful world where everyone's happy and everything's good and it's all positive, but he would come into a deep, dark world like the judges. And the light would shine. And even the darkness of the judges would not be able to drown him out. Even the darkness of our world today cannot defeat the light. This is the overwhelming and never-ending love of God. This is the love of God that the Apostle Paul says will never be lost. He says, neither height nor depth, nor rulers, nor this age, nor the next age, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ. Oh, you simply caught this sermon by now. It's simply this. Sin is the problem and Jesus is the answer. The problem's not out there. Other people, other things. The problem's in here. Dysfunction in us flows from sin in us. And Jesus has come to deal decisively with that sin once and for all. Surely you've caught it by now. The sermon has but one point. Sin is our deepest problem, and Jesus is God's answer to it. For some of you, this is the literal millionth time you've heard that. To others of you, maybe this is the first time you've thought about it in these terms. But to both of you, I have but one plea. Stop trying to save yourself, prove yourself, and advance yourself. Just trust him. Just rest in his love. Never gonna be good enough to save yourself, strong enough to pull yourself out of the darkness, holy enough to get to where God can finally look at you and be proud. Maybe some of you have had tough fathers, come from a tough home, where you've always felt like you just need to be more and do more and prove yourself to people. Oh, I pray this, as Advent gives way to Christmas, that you would find rest for your souls. Because Jesus preaches that his burden is light. You don't need to save yourself, prove yourself to anybody. The God of heaven knows you. He created you. He came from heaven to seek you and save you. And he will keep you to the end. Will you trust him this morning? On this final week of Advent, in the darkest passage of scripture, one of the darkest passages of scripture, even now, if you set your eyes toward the sunrise, you can see that light is breaking through. For to us, a child is born.
that your word is challenging your word is not easy (laughs) it's not a nice little storybook that has happy stories with a little moral lesson but your word is true and your word is good and we find this morning in this passage not an endorsement of any of this stuff that happens but we find Lord in this passage your grace in the middle of our sin, your grace in the middle of our suffering and our pain, and your plan to save us even still. Spend just a moment on your own, folks, brothers, sisters, friends, in prayer. Trusting Jesus, repenting of sin, preparing for celebration. Amen.